Uncommon Sense Advice on your work life, your personal life, and God knows what else. Welcome to How to Do Life with Dr. Marty Nemco. I don't know, um, I've become a big fan of short form essays, short stories, and I've assembled for you that I'm about to read to you. I think we all like to be read to a bit. Uh, I'll try to read with expression so you're not bored. Five essays. Three by my very favorite essayist, a National Humanities Medal winner, National Endowment for the Humanities, Joseph Epstein. One called Jews and His Jokes, the other about athletes, uh, and the third is a uh, about September love. And then I've got uh, one called Against Joie de Vivre, Against the Joy of Life by Philip Lopate, and then a... Um, uh, an excerpt from a wonderful podcast, uh, a podcast called Philosophize This by Stephen West, in which he discusses the philosopher Jose uh, Miguel Amuno, no, Ortega, Ortega y Gasset. And so, without further ado, uh, first here we have Jews and Their Jokes by Joseph Epstein, the aforementioned. It's a long essay, and so I have trimmed it uh, uh, quite a bit. So it's about 10 minutes long, each of them, so that they, they fit into what's appropriate for a podcast, in my judgment. Anyway, here we go. After reading Jeremy Dauber's book, Jewish Comedy, A Serious History, an excellent new survey of Jewish humor from the Old Testament through Adam Sandler, some might say that God chose the Jews to convey jokes, write sitcoms and comic movies, and publish novels peopled chiefly by clownish antiheroes. Citing a Pew Research Center study titled A Portrait of Jewish Americans, Dauber reports that 42% of respondents felt that having a good sense of humor was part of being Jewish in America today, 14% more than being part of a Jewish community, and 23% more than observing Jewish law. In other words, at the heart of being Jewish in the minds of a preponderant number of American Jews is comedy. How did this minority people produce so much humor, so many jokey jakeys? Every decent book on comedy should at minimum have several good jokes. What's the ultimate Jewish dilemma? Ham on sale. Jokes about anti-Semites tend to be richer, like the one about the drunk at the bar, who three times offers to buy drinks to the house, each time excluding my Israelite pal at the end of the bar. When the Jew asks the drunk what he has against him, the drunk answered, you sank the Titanic! The Jew replied, I didn't sink the Titanic, an iceberg sank the Titanic. After belching daintily, the drunk responds, Iceberg, Greenberg, Goldberg, you're all no good! Understanding Jewish humor derives from the split social personality of Jews, the simultaneous feeling of resentment and not being entirely in the mainstream of ordinary life, joined with their disdain for the vapidity of that life, thus linking a sense of inferiority to one of superiority. Darber sets out the various theories of humor. There is, for example, the lacrimose, that is tearful, theory of Jewish humor. The joke here is, the theme of every Jewish holiday is, we suffered, we survived, let's eat. There's a nice selection of Jewish curses. May your bones be broken as often as the Ten Commandments. The most politically incorrect of such jokes are Jewish women jokes, which play on the stereotypes of the nagging, overcaring, overbearing, disapproving Jewish mother. And the Jewish American princess. What does a Jap make for dinner? Reservations. Jews in cosmetic surgery? 
Dorothy Parker said that Fanny Bryce's rhinoplasty, that's a nose job, was a case of cutting off her nose despite her race. The domineering wife? When a boy returns from school to announce he's going to play the Jewish husband in a school play, his mother sends him back to tell the teacher he wants a speaking part. Those of you who can't get it, Jewish women tend to be very dominating and the husbands get cowed into silence. And the extravagant wife? A thief stole my wife's purse with all her credit cards. I'm not going after him. He spends less than she does. Perhaps the summa of Jewish women jokes has Goldberg walking along the beach, who picks up a bottle out of which emerges a genie, offering him one wish. Goldberg wishes for world peace. The genie tells him he gets that wish a lot and hasn't had much success in fulfilling it. Perhaps he'd like to try another wish. Very well. Goldberg says he would like more respect from his wife, for her to provide the occasional home-cooked meal, maybe allow him sex every other fiscal quarter. The genie paused and said, Tell me, Goldberg, what precisely do you mean by world peace? Perhaps the edgiest of contemporary Jewish comedians is Sarah Silverman, who in one of her bits quoted by Darber claimed it was neither the Romans nor the Jews who killed Christ, but the blacks. In another bit, Silverman plays a ditzy woman in her early 30s, childless, her biological clock running, who recounts how inconvenient at various earlier stages in life it would have been to have a child, and concludes that the best time to have a baby when you're a black teenager. How Silverman has been able to tell such politically incorrect jokes and not be stoned to death is an interesting question. A category that Dauber might have added to his other seven is jokes about Jewish assimilation and Jews sliding away from Judaism and their Jewishness generally. Perhaps the subtlest of these jokes is the one about the three rabbis who over lunch discovered that all of them had a problem with mice in their synagogues. The first rabbi recounts that he called it an exterminator, but without great success. The second rabbi tells that he set tens of mouse traps around the synagogue, but when one of the traps went off, it greatly disturbed the service, and he had to remove them all. The third rabbi, however, announced that he had found a solution by buying a 25-pound wheel of Stilton cheese that he set on the altar, whereupon 68 mice suddenly appeared. When asked how that got rid of the problem, the rabbi replies, I bar mitzvahed all 68, and they never return. Now, I need to explain to non-Jews. Many, if not most Jews, after getting bar mitzvahed or bat mitzvahed, have little or nothing to do with synagogues ever again, and I am one of them. <laughs> anyway, at the close of the book, Dauber mentions the possibility that the Jewish comedy era may be near an end. Political correctness figures eventually to take its toll on Jewish comedy, as well as all comedy. In any case, that's a lightly trimmed version of Joseph Epstein's essay, Jews and Their Jokes. The next one, also by Joseph Epstein, National Humanities Medal Award winner, is a love, kind of a, an, a I will say, an indictment of September love, somebody... Anyway, this is called The Love Song of A. Jerome Minkoff. Again, it's very long, too long for podcasts, so here I'm excerpting pieces to make roughly the best half of it. Dr. A. Jerome Minkoff, family practitioner, three years a widower, and coming up on his 64th birthday, met Larissa Friedman, two years into her widowhood and 52 years old, at a charity dinner at the Ambassador East Hotel in Chicago for ALS, dragged goddamn Lou Gehrig's disease, from which both their spouses had died. And they were seated next to each other at the same table near the dais. Mrs. Friedman gave the few things he said full court press attention. She smiled. She agreed emphatically. More than once she touched his forearm, gave it a gentle squeeze. Louisa Friedman lived in Los Angeles. 
Minkoff recalled her saying that she was staying at the Drake Hotel in Chicago. Late though it was, he called her there and asked if he might drive her to O'Hare, that's the airport, tomorrow, a Wednesday, and the day off for him. Minkoff picked Mrs. Friedman up at 9.30 in the morning, and they arrived a touch after 10. She suggested a cup of coffee, and so Minkoff pulled up in front of the O'Hare Hilton. In the hotel coffee shop, they exchanged talk about the cruelty visit upon their late husbands by the disease and about their own lives, as she put it, as bachelors. More than once, Minkoff felt her knee touch his. Concerned about the time of her flight's departure, he checked his watch. No worries, she said, smiling. She called United Airlines from her cell phone and rescheduled her flight. She leaned toward Minkoff, giving off a strong whiff of expensive perfume, and whispered into his ear. He had spent four extraordinary hours in a room upstairs at the airport Hilton with Mrs. Friedman, make that Larissa. He hadn't himself entirely neglected things down there, but Larissa Friedman had refreshed his memory of how revivifying they could be. She told Minkoff that she planned to be back in Chicago early next month and hoped they might be able to spend some time together then. Yeah, sure, of course. He would look forward to it. They kissed and she patted him twice on his bottom as he walked out into the cool hallway of the O'Hare Hilton. Things progressed quickly. Larissa Friedman called to say that she was returning to Chicago two weeks earlier than expected and would have the use of an apartment in the 900 North Michigan Avenue building that was owned and used as a pied-à-terre by a neighbor of hers in Brentwood. Brentwood's uh, near Beverly Hills in Los Angeles. Equally fancy. Their week together left Minkoff exhausted. Every night, Larissa made reservations at one or another of those restaurants Minkoff used to read about with less than casual interest in Chicago Magazine but had never taken his wife Marlene to. True, Trio, Charlie Trotters were well-connected people, ate a great privilege, apparently. Larissa had acquired tickets to the Symphony, to a Goodman Theater production of Death of a Salesman, to Steppenwolf, where they saw Lady Macbeth deliver her monologue in the nude. Afterwards, she and Minkoff retired to the pied-à-terre and did not sleep much. Minkoff worked long hours. He began making his rounds at Rush St. Luke's Hospital at 7 a.m. He saw 20 patients a day. But instead of shuffling off to bed at 9.30 every night, he was out with Larissa Friedman, whose energy in bed or out on Michigan Avenue appeared inexhaustible. Only a day after she returned to Los Angeles, she called him and asked him to come on the following weekend to attend a dinner party with a few friends in Los Angeles that they were giving for her 53rd birthday. At LAX, after picking up his bag, Minkoff discovered a limo driver holding up a sign with his name on it. He and the driver exchanged few words, but when they were near Larissa Friedman's house in Brentwood, the driver pointed out a house across the street. This is where O.J. lived when he knocked off his wife and her boyfriend. As they pulled up in front of Larissa's house, Minkoff noted in the driveway a convertible of a dazzling blue and a make he didn't recognize. Maserati, the driver said. Larissa's house was capacious. The dinner that evening was at a restaurant called Spago. Four other couples were there. Everyone called Minkoff by his first name. Two of the women obviously had had plastic surgery. Lots of talk about the food, large quantities of wine were drunk. Once again, Minkoff felt himself odd man out. When the check came, Minkoff insisted on playing his and Larissa's share. The men each put down credit cards, and when the waiter returned with the check, his part of the total came to, this was a few, good few years ago, $680. The tip was included. I have to tell you, I am not a $680 a dinner guy, Minkoff told Larissa once they were back in her living room. It's not that I can't afford a dinner like that from time to time. It's just that I feel there's something intrinsically wrong about it. People lie and cheat and even kill for money. This being so, I've always felt that at the least I could do is respect money. 
Spending that kind of money for a meal isn't, in my opinion, respecting it. Minkoff assumed his life with Louisa Friedman when we lived in Southern California in her house. He imagined himself driving the blue Maserati top-down to the Pacific Ocean on his right, the wind whirring through his thinning hair. He had originally planned to retire at 70. Would it matter all that much if he knocked off five years earlier? Minkoff's wife had never taken to California, northern or southern. She thought it thin. That had been her word for it, thin. Later the same week, Larissa called to say she was coming to Chicago and asked if it would be okay if she stayed in his apartment. Larissa arrived with two large Louis Vuitton suitcases for a three-day stay. Minkoff opened a bottle of Riesling, put out some cheese and crackers. Over a glass of wine, they talked about his moving to California. I'm a little edgy about it, Minkoff said. For one thing, I've never not worked. I'm not sure I'm built for leisure. Don't worry, baby, she said. We'll have a wonderful time, a full, rich life. Minkoff wasn't entirely sure how things had gotten to this point. He hadn't proposed, but once we had established itself in Larissa's conversation, it was as though she had already arranged for the movers. She had taken to calling him every night. In their nightly conversations, the word when began to replace we, as in when you move to Los Angeles and when we are together. She was a good closer, Larissa. Give her that, Minkoff thought. Minkoff arose early the next morning to get ready for his hospital rounds. He made coffee, and trying not to wake, Larissa got into the shower. He was shampooing when Larissa entered. Hello, darling, she said with a sleepy smile. Seems a shame to waste the water, so I thought I might as well shower with you. She put her arms around Minkoff's neck. He remembered the last time he had been naked in the shower with a woman. In the same shower, Larissa's highly maintained body, the work of so many hours in spas and health clubs with personal trainers, should have filled him with a sense of all the promise that life still held out, even at his age. Instead, he felt only a deadening sense of emptiness and betrayal. It is not going to work, Minkoff heard himself say. That's all right, darling, she said. We've got all of tonight. No, he said, the water splattering them. I mean, my moving out to Los Angeles or getting married. Why, what's wrong, baby? she asked, looking up at him, water dripping down her eyes from her fine French haircut. What's wrong is I am I and you are you. What's that supposed to mean? What it means is I am not California. I am not Brentwood. I am not Maserati. I am not Spago Dinners. And the truth is I have no interest in being any of those things. Try, she said. I have tried. I've wasted your time. I apologize. Larissa left the shower and slammed the door. He soaped up, shaved, and readied himself to get into a cab so he could get back to work. Anyway, that story, uh, again by um, Joseph Epstein, is called um, A Love Song of H. Jerome Minkoff. Okay, the next story is not by Joseph Epstein, by Philip Lopate. It is, um, he's a quite a, an eminent essayist, and this one is called Against Joie de Vie, that is, Against the Love of Life. And again, the original essay is very long, so these are excerpts where I think are the most interesting, hopefully, to you. Against Joie de Vivre. Over the years, I've developed a distaste for the spectacle of Joie de Vivre, that is, the love of life, the knack of knowing how to live. I remember the exact year when my dislike for Joie de Vivre began to crystallize. It was 1969. We had gone to visit an old Greek painter on his houseboat in Sausalito. Old Varthus' vitality was legendary, and it was considered a spiritual honor to meet him, like getting an audience with the Pope. Each Sunday, he had a sort of open house or open boat. As he took us into the houseboat cabin, 
He told me proudly he was 77 years old and gestured toward the paintings that were spaced a few feet apart, leaning on the floor against the wall. They were celebrations of the blue Aegean, boats, whitewashed houses on a hill painted in primary colors and decorated with collage materials. These sunny little canvases with their talented innocence, third generation spirit, all bore testimony to a love of life so unbending so as to leave an impression of rigid narrow-mindedness. Their rejection of sorrow was total. They were the sort of festive paintings that sell in high-rent Madison Avenue galleries specializing in European schlock. Then I became aware of three young, beautiful, bare-shouldered women wearing white, each with long blonde hair falling onto a sky-blue halter, unmistakably suggesting the three graces. They lived with him on the houseboat, I was told. No one knew what compensation they paid for their lodgings. Then the boat, equipped with a sail, was launched to sea. I must admit it gave me a spoil sport's pleasure when the winds turned calm. We could not move. Aboard were several members of the Bay Area's French colony who dangled their feet over the sides, passed about bunches of grapes, and sang what I imagine were gala camping songs in the evening after a communal dinner. The new Grateful Dead record that Frank had brought was put on the phonograph, and Varthus danced first by himself and then with the three graces. Bending his arm in broad hooking sweeps, he stomped his footings, looked around scampishly at the guests for appreciation, not unlike a monkey grinder and his monkey, turning to dinner parties. I'm invited periodically to dinner parties and brunches, and I go because I like to be with people and oblige them, even if I secretly cannot share their optimism about these events. I go not believing I'll have fun, but with the intent of observing people who think a dinner party is a good time. I eat their fancy food, drink the wine, make my share of entertaining conversation, and often leave having had a pleasant evening, which does not prevent me from anticipating the next invitation with the same bleak lack of hope. The conversation of dinner parties is of a mind-numbing caliber. No discussion of any clarifying rigor, be it political, spiritual, artistic, or financial, can take place in a context where fervent conviction of any kind is frowned upon, and the desire to follow through sequence of ideas must give way every time to the impressionistic, breezy flitting from topic to topic. Talk must be bubbly but not penetrating. Illumination would only slow the flow. Some hit-and-run remark may accidentally jog some idea loose, but in such cases it's better to scribble a few words down on a napkin for later than to attempt to think at a dinner party. What do people talk about at such gatherings? The latest movies, the priciness of things, word processors, restaurants, muggings, and burglaries, private versus public schools, that fool in the White House. The first to leave a dinner party breaks the communal spell. There is a sudden rush to the coat closets, to the bathroom, to the bedroom, as others, under the protection of the first defector's original sin, quit the party apologetically. The utopian dream has collapsed. Next, let's talk about the beach. The prospect of a long day at the beach makes me panicky. There is no harder work I can think of than taking myself somewhere pleasant where I am forced to stay for hours and, quote, have fun taking it easy, watching my personality's borders loosen and dissolve, arouses an unpleasantly floating giddiness. I don't even like waterbeds. The other repugnance I experience around joie de vivreism is depression. All those people sitting around a pool drinking margaritas. They're not really happy. They're depressed. Maybe I'm generalizing too much for my own despair. In such situations, drunk, sunbaked, stretched out on a beach chair, I'm unable to wear off the sensation of being utterly alone, unconnected. Keep busy, I always say. At all costs, avoid the trough of passivity, which leads to the sloth of despond. 
I wouldn't rule out the possibility that the brown-gray logic of depression is the truth. In an experiment reported in the New York Times, pitting optimists against clinically diagnosed depressives on their self-perceived abilities to affect outcomes, researchers concluded that depressed people may have a more realistic, clear-sighted view of the world. The argument of both the hedonist and the guru is that if we were to open ourselves to the riches of the moment, to concentrate on the feast before us, we would be filled with bliss. I have lived in the present from time to time, and I can tell you it's much overrated. Occasionally, as a holiday from stroking one's memory or brooding and brooding about one's future worries, I grant you it could be a nice change of pace. But to be here now, hour after hour, would never work. I don't even approve of stories written in the present tense. Are there people who live under such spells of chirpiness all the time? Was this the secret of the idiotic smile on the half-moon face of the painter Varthus, the lovers of life that the robust Cellinis portrayed, the Casanovas? Is there a technique to hedonism that would allow the term of rapture to be indefinitely extended? I don't believe it. And again, that's uh, Philip Lopati's essay uh, against Joie de Vivre. This one is another one by Joseph Epstein. It's called Our Gladiators, subtitle of Tiger Woods and Those Who Play for Our Amusement. Again, Joseph Epstein is a National Humanities Medal winner bestowed by the National Endowment for the Humanities. Between the National Football League's motto, football is family, or the National Basketball Association's assertion, the NBA cares. Which has the lower truth quotient? Without the finest calibrated of instruments, it is, I suspect, impossible to measure. Why the need for this sad public relations effort on behalf of football and basketball and of professional sports generally? Part of the answer is that there is something askew about the entire enterprise, at least in its contemporary phase. How else, consider a situation in which players in their 20s and early 30s are able to earn millions of dollars hitting or throwing or kicking balls or banging pucks or one another around before audiences willing to pay exorbitant sums to watch them do so? Two of the three major American professional sports, football and basketball, have a preponderance of African-American players. For football, the percentage is 64%. For basketball, 75%. Of NBA games, my friend of mine noted that they're over, not when the fat lady sings, but instead when the white guys go in. One of the sad joke phrases of our time is scholar-athlete to describe college jocks. Even student-athlete has come to have a bitter, unreal ring. The proof of this is in those pre- and post-game barely literate interviews with professional athletes. Years ago, it was said of a certain NBA All-Star that he led the league in, you knows. From a fairly early age, gifted athletes often live a privileged status. Today, kids with professional athletic ability are spotted as early as 13 or 14, and cultivated by high school coaches and sometimes college coaches. For a brief spell, some of the best players in the NBA took a pass altogether on college, and many others took up the option known as one-and-done, one year of college, and departed college with a hefty contract for the NBA and all the associated rewards. The effects of such early adulation on personality aren't easily reckoned. A number of years ago, the Chicago Bulls basketball team had a player named Scottie Pippen, whose sobriquet around town was No Tippin Pippen, owing to his being known for never leaving a tip at a restaurant. But then how could he have known about tipping when all his life he probably never had to pick up a check? The real toll on superior athletes may be in the narrowing of perspective, and thereby personality, that great athletic prowess often brings in its train. To become a great athlete calls for endless practice to the exclusion of much else in life. I've recently read a 485-page biography of Tiger Woods and found it unexpectedly fascinating, not least on the subject of the perils of the life of the highly successful professional athlete. Eldrick Taunt Woods, Tiger Woods, 
who is now 47 and still on the PGA Tour, planning to play in a number of tournaments in 2023, including the Masters, need not soon worry about his own fame diminishing. Even in our day, when the word millionaire has lost much of its punch, Wood's earnings are impressive. His agent at the International Management Group brought in, this was roughly, I think, about 2018, brought in roughly $120 million in endorsements to him from Nike, American Express, Disney, Gillette, General Motors, Rolex, Accenture, Gatorade, General Mills, and the video game company EA Sports. It used to be Electronic Arts. He was paid a million dollars merely to appear in a golf tournament in Germany, three million to appear in another in Australia. His instructional book, How I Play Golf, sold a million copies in hardcover. By 2010, he is said to have earned more than a billion dollars through golf and investment deals. His caddy, for God's sake, earned $12 million over 11 seasons with him. Woods had enough money to be able to pay one of his 14 mistresses $10 million in hush money, making President Trump's alleged payment of $130 to Stormy Daniels seem like chump change in the hopes of keeping his marriage intact. As his biographers note, one of the perks of being a celebrated athlete is that tact and personality are not prerequisite securing female companionship. Woods took sufficient advantage of this perk, so that for the better part of four years, the National Enquirer, the scandal sheet, had him under nearly full-time surveillance. The Enquirer did eventually run a study about his extramarital affairs, but everything really fell apart when Ellen, his wife, and the mother of his two young children, discovered texts on his phone from one of his mistresses. Things get a bit blurry here. What is known is that at 2 a.m. on November 27, 2009, Woods rushed from his house, got into his Cadillac Esplanade SUV, lost control peeling out of his own driveway, ran over a fire hydrant, and wound up crashing into a tree in a neighbor's yard. His biographers write, When the police arrived after responding to a 911 call from Tiger's neighbor, they found that both sides of the backseat of his vehicle had been smashed out with a golf club that had been swung by Ellen. This provides a splendid feast for the gutter press and a lengthy schadenfreudian holiday for the media generally. For the New York Times to Us Weekly, everyone had a shot at Tiger, golf great and cheating husband. His biographers report that he appeared on the front page of the New York Post 21 days in a row, surpassing the previous record of 20 consecutive covers devoted to the 9-11 terrorist attacks. God, the media is pounding me, Tiger said to a friend, a former golf instructor named Hank Haney. They're such vultures. Tiger Woods claimed not simple abysmal irresponsibility for his errant sexual rompings, but the latest psychological excuse, sex addiction. W.H. Auden claimed that the motto of psychology ought to be, have you heard this one? And not long after crashing his car, he went into a facility for sex addiction in Hattiesburg, Mississippi. Although he publicly apologized for his adulteries, his wife divorced him. Perhaps more important, his golf game went into a deep hole. He failed to win a tournament for a full five-year stretch, his PGA ranking dropped from his perennial first to 13th. His father, Earl, an African-American and retired U.S. Army lieutenant colonel, referred to his son as the Chosen One, and early in Tiger's professional career claimed that because of his son's half-black, half-Thai ethnicity, quote, he'll have the power to impact nations, not people, nations, end quote. Tiger was raised one stage beyond pampered. His biographers tell us that as a boy, he was never asked to do household chores, never held a job, mowed lawns, delivered newspapers, or did anything else. Golf was his only job. This narrowing of Tiger Woods' interest produced a less than impressive, one might even say less than full, human being. As a boy, apart from golf, and his father did not permit him to play other sports, lest he injure himself, he spent long hours at video games. He had few friends. Gratitude seems not to have been in his quiver of emotions. Later in life, once his fame had set in, according to his biographers, quote, for Tiger, even the most basic of civility, the simple hello or thank you, went missing from his vocabulary, end quote. 
A Vegas nightclub owner said, quote, he got mean, end quote. A sports journalist named Jimmy Roberts remarked that there's more fuck you in Tiger Woods than in any athlete I've ever seen. Perhaps all major athletes have to be self-centered. But as his biographers write, quote, the secret to Tiger's dominance in golf was that he was the most one-dimensional human being on the PGA Tour, end quote. As a young man, Tiger Woods claimed he wanted to be the, quote, Michael Jordan of golf, end quote. He later became close to Jordan, thought of himself as the younger brother, the same Michael Jordan of whom Woods biographers claim one, quote, didn't have to travel far to find stories of his barely tipping or stiffing caddies, locker room attendants, card dealers, bartenders, or of his driving his tricked-out North Carolina blue golf cart down the middle of a fairway, music blaring as he blew by one foursome or another while yelling, hurry the fuck up! You guys are slow as fuck! In our professional athletes, we've created a gladiator class. Not, to be sure, an enslaved class like the gladiators in Rome, but a highly paid and privileged one. Yet our gladiators function much the same as their Roman precursors, to provide circuses, hold the bread, for a large proportion of the male citizenry of the American public. This gladiatorial status is true across the spectrum of professional sports. Even tennis, once a vaguely aristocratic game, has felt the deadening hands of professionalization through the infusion of huge sums of money. Just the first prize money for men and women in the U.S. Open this past year, this one tournament was $3.8 million. When tennis players win tournaments, they now customarily thank their team. By team, they mean coach and coaches, trainers, physicians, and psychologists. Think of it. We've been paying a select group of overly trained men and a few women grand sums at the expense of their not leading normal lives to perfect and perform for our pleasure what are in effect games devised for children. Then there is the obvious yet still disturbing fact that we fans of many of these games are more loyal to the teams we follow than are the men who play for these teams. I still run into the occasional older man who has never forgiven the Dodgers from moving from Brooklyn to Los Angeles. In an earlier day, great professional athletes, DiMaggio, Stan Musial, Bob Cousy, Johnny Unitas, Gordie Howe, stayed their entire careers with the same team in the same cities. Now, with free agency, arbitration, sports agents, a player is offered more money and it's, yo dude, catch you later. The contradictions inherent in professional sports and playing them, watching them, paying for them are too glaring to overlook. Yet most of those among us who spend a disproportionate amount of our times engaged with them overlook these contradictions easily enough. Has the time come to cease to do so? I suspect it has. In any case, uh, that story uh, is called The Power Gladiators, subtitle of Tiger Woods and Those Who Play for Amusement by National Humanity Award winner Joseph Epstein. In the next essay I want to read you, I think it's the last one, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's this one is, uh, actually it's the transcript uh, an edited transcript of the podcast is too long. The podcast is like an hour long, and this is roughly 10 minutes worth. But uh, very interesting about his discussion of the philosopher Juan Ortega y Gasset. My opinion is just as valid as everyone else's, and simply by virtue of existing, I have rights. I deserve a seat at the table when it comes to any level of cultural participation. At that point, the eminent 20th century philosopher Jose Ortega y Gasset might scream, what we're looking at here may be a prime example of the greatest infestation into the mindset of Western democracy we've ever faced. Ortega called such a person the mass man, the type of person that emerges when someone is born into a Western democracy, when they've inherited unprecedented freedom, but are completely unconcerned about the responsibility that always comes with being given freedom. Before you have a conniption for it, dear reader, 
I don't want anyone to misunderstand Ortega here. He's not talking about mediocre people or the masses from a sociological or socioeconomic point of view. He's talking about the mass man as a type of psychology that traps people from all walks of life. You can be a billionaire and still be thinking with this mass mentality. Every generation has had their version of mediocre people, but Ortega would say we have changed the way we structure our societies, and in doing so, gave mediocre people a level of respect for their opinions that we've really never seen before throughout history. Think about it. In today's world, you can be sitting around a table with a bunch of educated people having a discussion about some serious issue that's facing the world, and you can add up the amount of time you've spent really thinking about this issue and never have thought about it for more than five minutes, and it's amazing. You can open your mouth at that table, and those people have to take your opinion into consideration as though you're an equal. Well, that's one perspective. Social media in today's world lets you have thoughts about the world you've never had really tried that hard to even remotely understand. No worries. You now have a platform to say whatever you want, and other mediocre people will probably like your posts. You could self-publish a book in today's world, and other mediocre people will buy it. Not everyone's perspective is equally developed, and we should commend the people who have done the work to challenge the limitations of their perspectives and expose themselves to more experiences. The fact of the matter is we are not all equal. Ortega would say that there are people who have just put in more work than other people when it comes to developing their understanding in certain areas of life, and if we truly value equality, we should always make sure that, yes, people are treated equally under the law, but we are not the same. And whenever we try too hard to convince everybody we are, society is going to suffer. Today, everyone's a critic. Everyone has a say. Everyone gets a Yelp review. And everyone's input deserves equal time. Ortega says this is nonsense. For us to preserve all the good things we want to preserve about equality as a central focus of society, we don't have to play this game where everyone's opinion is equally valid regardless of their experience. For example, you may want me to be your resident philosophy podcaster, but you wouldn't want me to be your brain surgeon. You don't want me to be your interior decorator picking out your curtains. You don't want me to be the drummer in your favorite music group. You watch someone who spent 20,000 hours of their life playing the drums, mastering their craft, and it's not controversial to say that there is a clear difference between that person's playing and a five-year-old banging on some pots and pans on the kitchen floor. The master of their craft is just better. To deny this is to appeal, as some do, to total relativism total egalitarianism. Everything is equal. To deny that some people are more worthy of consideration is to deny the possibility that we can put in effort and arrive at progressive levels of understanding. The same dynamic applies across society in many different areas where we see this phenomenon of massification. We love equality. We want to flatten the hierarchies that exist within society. But Ortega would want us to consider what we're potentially losing when we engage in that process. When everyone's a critic, when everyone's opinion is as good as everyone else's, then in the white noise of all those equally legitimate opinions, we lose the opinions of people who have, may have dedicated their lives to understanding culture in its various levels of refinement. In other words, the true critics out there get lost in the noise. Ortega wrote, quote, The mass crushes beneath it everything that is different, everything that is excellent, individual, qualified, and select. An example, nobody wants to work for some guy who through nepotism became the assistant manager at a Dairy Queen. Why? This kid was given an inordinate amount of freedom without the wisdom of earning it and knowing the responsibility that has to correspond to it. The masses are the spoiled child of modern democracy. Ortega literally calls them spoiled children, and this is what he means. Masses have inherited by dint of the time of history they were born time in history they were born, unprecedented rights and opportunities. 
They're told that they're great, like a spoiled kid. They have an attitude of self-love. They wave around technology that has taken thousands of years to produce without the slightest bit of understanding about what it took to bring it into existence or what responsibility now comes along with it. They're just mad when it doesn't load fast enough. But it may be worth it to press Ortega here. It's worth asking, why is this self-satisfaction necessarily toxic? Why should I care if people live in their little self-created echo chambers where they think they're smarter than they really are? Ortega would say that these people and the way they approach their entire role in the world start to look a lot like fascists, a sort of fascism of mediocrity. And if you think he's being extreme here, saying this, in the year 1929, look at the world since then. Let's look at the similarities between the mass mentality and the fascist mentality. For one, Ortega would say that the mass man sees no reason to appeal to any sort of external source of justification for the legitimacy of their ideas. Their ideas are validated simply because they're currently in their heads, so they must be good. This type of self-satisfied, ordinary individual just never sees any reason to seek out new ideas to challenge what they already think they know, and so do many fascists. Another example, the mass man devalues history and the history of ideas, like a fascist. Doubt that? Just look around. You can hear all sorts of people say, why would I spend my time studying things like the philosophy or history? Why do I care if Ben Franklin built a staircase 200 years ago? I don't need to be an expert political philosopher to know how to move the country forward. That seems like a giant waste of time. You know what your problem is? You're living in the past, man. I'm living in the here and now. And when I get off work in the here and now, I just want to watch Netflix and the news and stuff that's actually relevant to my life. Why history? What's going on in both these examples? Ortega says that the mass mentality exercises an attitude of their predominance over the world, just like a fascist would. In other words, because their ideas never really have to be tested against any other ideas, they don't ever have to really consider all the other types of people that exist out there. So they effectively become bulletproof against nuance of any kind, and that creates a psychological climate, Ortega says, almost a petri dish-like environment for fascist ideas to work their way in slowly. Ortega says that the mass man imposes a type of, quote, spiritual barbarism on the world. The average person is the new barbarian, including the professional man, more learned than ever before, but at the same time more uncultured, the engineer, the physician, the lawyer, the scientist. Ortega says that society needs to distinguish between people that are actually challenging their prejudices and the self-satisfied people living in an echo chamber that they constructed for themselves. If Ortega is screaming anything at us about how to live better, it's don't be the mass man. Don't be the mere buoys that float upon the waves. Participate. In any case, those are uh, five of my very favorite essays. I hope you like them too. As usual, I welcome your thumbs up and accept your thumbs down. Oh, by the way, I should just repeat it with Stephen West's S. These are not mine. None of these are mine. I usually, many of my previous YouTubes are my work, short stories, essays, and the like. But this, none of these are mine. This one is the abridged version of episode 167 of uh, the podcast Philosophize This with Stephen West, in which he was talking about the views of Juan Ortega y Gasset. Uh, I welcome your thumbs up, accept your thumbs down. I always look forward to your comments, and especially like it if you hit the share button below. Share on your social media so that my efforts can have broader impact. And I am flattered if you choose to subscribe to my channel. And I do like to end each podcast with uh, what I believe is a 
a one-liner, if you will, that is more relevant today than ever. It comes also not from me, from a writer named Frank Clark, Frank A. Clark, and it is, we find comfort among those who agree with us, growth among those who don't. You've been listening to How to Do Life with Dr. Marty Nemco. For comments on the show or to consult with Dr. Marty Nemco, his email address is m n e m k o at comcast.net. Post production of How to Do Life by Terry Rouse. Music by Blue Dot Session. Thanks for listening.